Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the International Studies Review of Books podcast. My name is Haspenai, the Books and Reviews Editor at the ISR, the flagship review journal of the International Studies Association. In this episode, it is a particular pleasure to feature a conversation with Dr. Swati Shervastav, Associate Professor of Political Science at Purdue University. We will be talking about her book, Hybrid Sovereignty in World Politics, which was published in 2022 in the Cambridge Studies in International Relations series. Professor Shivastov's research broadly covers the role of private actors in global governance, such as tech companies, contractors, and lobbyists. She has published extensively on these topics in academic journals, such as International Organization, International Studies Quarterly, Perspectives on Politics, and International Studies Review, among other outlets. As part of her research, Dr. Shravastav also theorizes relational approaches like constructivism and new kinds of responsibility. Her current research explores the global politics of big tech and the sociopolitical implications of artificial intelligence. She leads a research lab at Purdue on international politics and responsible tech. One part of the project builds an original data set of Facebook's sociopolitical harms and tracks related regulatory activities worldwide. Another assembles a tech transparency database to assess how companies fulfill their human rights obligations. Professor Shervastov is currently a visiting scholar at Harvard University's Institute for Rebooting Social Media in the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Previously, she was an assistant professor of global politics at Humboldt State University and Andrew Mellon Foundation, an American Council of Learned Society's doctoral fellow. We hope you enjoy our conversation about her recently published book. Professor Shervastov, thank you for joining us for this, the third book review podcast of the International Studies Review Journal. It's a special privilege to speak with you about your latest book, Hybrid Sovereignty in World Politics, published in 2022 by Cambridge University Press in their Cambridge Studies and International Relations series. Welcome and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Okay, I want to start uh, by asking you about the genesis of this project. Uh, in our trade, books are either an outgrowth of earlier arguments in published articles or unitary projects that would perhaps spawn future related projects. Where did the idea for the book first germinate along that spectrum for you? Yeah, for me, I think it came out of a master's thesis project that I started at the University of Chicago, um, which featured one of the cases. And the more I dug into it um, in my early PhD at Northwestern, it became clear answering the question of like, what is this a case of led to other kinds of cases and studies. Um, and so the original master's thesis expanded um, to the argument that later became the book. Um, and it's been the kind of book project um, that has not led to a lot of standalone articles and spinoffs. Um, the book has been very difficult to chop up, um, although I have published uh, some empirical standalone pieces um, that are sort of unconnected to the theory. Um, but there isn't like a mini version of the book um, in an article because I actually found that very difficult to do. So even though it was um, generated from uh, a smaller sort of master's thesis that became a dissertation that, that became a book. Um, the book is kind of its own thing and in some ways needs the full length and all the seven chapters to make the argument that I'm making. I see. And so, and the empirical chapters, you noted, you had a recent piece in international organization mm -hmm. on the East India company. Mm -hmm. Is that the um, case study that was related to the book, but obviously it goes beyond the theme. Yes, uh, so that was one of them. And then there was a piece at ISQ um, with um, with the chapter in Amnesty International. I see, I see, great. Um, well, let's get to it. Uh, you note in the introduction of your book that, quote, understanding the competing dynamics of sovereignty in IR requires innovating beyond the foundational myth of sovereignty. What's the foundational myth of sovereignty um, in IR and what explains its perhaps lasting purchase on so many theoretical perspectives in the field? Mm -hmm. um, so the foundational myth has many components, but the one that I'm focusing on is about uh, who is the possessor of sovereignty and sovereign authority, uh, which we assume are nation states, sovereign states, um, in a sort of potentially long drawn out process 
that has led them to be the sole exclusive supreme authority. Um, and there are many aspects to this in terms of thinking about territory or other norms um, that are kind of related to this myth. But the thing that I focus on is whether or not sovereign authority can be divided, whether or not it is, it is um, considered divisible. And the foundational myth has thought about sovereignty as indivisible, as being uniquely uh, disclaimed to rightful rule that can be possessed by one source of authority. Now, the source of that authority itself uh, can vary. Sometimes it can um, inhere in a constitution or the people, um, sometimes sovereign heads, and those heads themselves can be either parliament or it can be a president or it can be a family. Um, so it's not necessarily that it has to be one person, but something about the claim to that has to be uh, a, um, a very concentrated, singular, indivisible authority. And it's that foundational claim um, that has in some ways made it easy for us to study sovereign states uh, because it makes it fairly easy for us to uh, figure out who is um, supposed to have the right to rule and who doesn't. Um, so not everybody who wants to claim power can claim themselves a sovereign. Um, and there's a lot of fights about who gets recognized as sovereign and who doesn't. And some of those fights are about uh, whether or not you have this claim to be recognized as having indivisible public authority. Yeah, we'll get to those finer distinctions because uh, there are, I think, um, subcategories mm -hmm. and um, classifications that you, I think, innovate with this book. And I, I want to uh, get to those in just a second. But coming back to this question of the foundational or the conventional conception of sovereignty in IR, why do you think that that myth has held on for so long that we've we continue to basically go with this westphalian kind of public mm -hmm. um notion of sovereignty what is it because our theories reinforce it and it's become kind of so central to the story that specific schools of thought thought tell uh, or why yeah i think understanding that sovereignty belongs to public authorities um exclusively has helped uh, not just uh, thinking about international relations as a discipline evolve itself, because then we can claim there's something unique about international relations opposed, as opposed to American politics compared to politics. Like we have this thing called the international, which we can study as a distinct object. And one of the core things that makes this international is sovereignty, um, which is this idea of sovereign equality between states, as well as sort of thinking about um, having um, hierarchy within states. And so um, I think it, it was important for the field to create this concept so that it can have um, ways in which you can talk about international relations as being distinct from other kinds of political relations. Um, and also in early theorizing, I think it helped people understand um, how does political power um, that might be despotic and yet it's it sort of endures. Um, so like, what about this is something that's um, sort of long lasting. And I guess thinking about having sovereign claims that are hard um, to establish is one way to explain that, is that not everybody, not every new change can come about and claim to have power. Um, and so I think it's both important for the field to have something to say about international politics, um, and also it's helpful to explain um, why things don't change as much as we want them to, ch to change. There's something about having a, um, that is basically difficult for new entities or um, people that are not public or not sort of recognized as public to just come in and claim that uh, like now we're in charge. Um, so I think it's those like dual concerns about field and sort of establishing boundaries um, and also explaining something about why things are still stuck in certain sort of um, cycles of power. Right. And it's important with the book, you're not trying to say sovereignty does not matter and it's it does not play an organizing role in international politics. It's just that the conventional understanding of sovereignty um, that we've been presented with that really privileges public state authority above and beyond other sources of authority uh, or forms of authority, what you call hybrid that I'll just get to in just a second, um, 
that is problematic here. Uh, that or it's important to actually hold on to the concept of sovereignty, but we need to complicate it. Exactly. Is that right? Yes. And so, um, so, so this version of um, thinking about public sovereign authority uh, is important not just for the field, but also for politics, because it's one of the key ways in which states talk about themselves and, again, talk about themselves as being separate from other powerful entities. Um, so it becomes not just important for the field of IR um, as sort of a boundary-making practice, but it's a very convenient and important political fiction to assert that we have this sovereign authority that is granted to us and us alone, um, and we can keep out other kinds of powers because they are not able to think of themselves as sovereign authority. Um, and so I think this foundational claim um, is, even though uh, in some ways narrow on how it thinks about sovereign authority, is still very useful um, in the kinds of effects it has. And that's one of the key ways that I think um, I have uh, both thought with and against some of the IR theories that have come uh, and that have, that have also challenged uh, these sort of myths of Westphalia, where they might, I think, come about and say that it's all wrong and we don't need to um, have any sort of myths about sovereignty. Um, I sort of come down on a little bit more, uh, we need these myths in some ways, or at least we have to examine the kind of productive role that, that the myth and that these kind of foundations have, not just for our national relations as a field, but for the actual politics of the states who are claiming to be sovereign. Um, so I think that we cannot abandon this myth. We can question it and challenge it, but it has a role in my theory for a reason. Um, while other theorists might be more critical and might ask us to basically um, just ignore it altogether or um, you know, uh, not afford it a lot of importance. Great. So conceptually, you deploy the term hybridity or hybrid um, to make a distinction between two kinds of sovereignty. You've already broadly alluded to them, but I wonder if we could go a little bit more in depth into them. And these two are idealized versus lived sovereignty. Uh, could you explain what each of these concepts mean? What is idealized versus um, uh, lived? And how the dialectic between them adds to the hybrid form of sovereignty that you're that you're speaking to? Yeah, so as I was just saying, so the idea was to think about what is the productive use of this political fiction about states as being the exclusive holders of public authority. And this is what I call um, as idealized sovereignty, which has been proposed by early modern thinkers like Baudin and Hobbes, who are sort of um, cornerstones of, of thinking about sovereignty and who possesses sovereign authority all the way into thinking um, sort of more recently in IR. Um, and this kind of work is idealized because it presents sovereignty as this ideal type um, of uh, thinking about exclusive uh, sovereign holders. Um, and I argue that this is, again, really important for the field and also for politics. We see it all the time and how leaders talk about themselves and their states. Um, in the kind of debates we have about globalization or about Brexit or about Trump, um, all of these debates about who holds sovereign power and the location of that as being uh, supreme and unified and indivisible are things that come up over and over again. Um, and so that to me is idealized sovereignty. And lived sovereignty on the other hand is, well, we know that um, even in the time of Hobbes and Baudin, um, we didn't have states that only had unified locus of sovereign competence, that they had to divide and uh, not just sovereign authority, but sovereign power to, in order to get anything done. Um, so for, for instance, um, thinking about the US constitution, there were debates about how to accommodate states and state rights within sort of the federal structure. Uh, and they had to do it twice to get it right. Um, and a lot of those debates were about how do we maintain uh, some sort of unified locus of sovereign authority while at the same time dividing power uh, between all these different bodies. And so lived sovereignty is sort of thinking about how sovereign competence has to involve some sort of uh, uh, sort of non-unified way of actually exercising power. 
which requires different types of um, entities and agents who are empowered to act in state-like manner. Um, and so lived sovereignty for me also, it means it's not just public and public agencies uh, who have sort of done power sharing, but also public and private. Um, and so the, so the role of private actors becomes a little bit more central to not, not just exercising uh, private governance, but also in exercising sovereign governance. Um, and so they're helping keeping up the sort, sort of sovereign competence. And so idealized sovereignty is this myth, um, as I call it, a very convenient political fiction of, of, um, of uh, public authority and lived sovereignty allows for public and private uh, practices of sovereign power. And both of them are required to maintain something like sovereignty in the world. Um, so I think it's really important that we have practices, but practices also need discourse to make sense of. And there's often tension between the two, um, where there might be a lot more divisible and diverse practices of sovereign competence, and not all of them will have the status of sovereign authority um, because we have um, different ways of talking about sovereign authority or like different arguments that are seen as legitimate or not. Uh, so just like, you know, we, we don't just have people um, that can go and claim, hello, I'm sovereign, and we sort of have that deference. It has to be recognized by other people. It's a social act. Um, so similarly, not all examples of lived sovereignty can translate into idealized sovereignty. And so for hybrid sovereignty, it's recognizing and giving place for that um, sort of idea of having practices, uh, while also recognizing that there's something distinctive about authority that's different from just competence or performance, uh, that it requires some additional work to convince people that you are in charge or should be in charge or have the right to be in right. charge. Right, and this is how it kind of, I think your um, new schematic differs from the kind of the standard way in which we have understood the kind of fictional aspects of sovereignty as organized hypocrisy in Steve Krasner's work, for instance, mm -hmm. right? That it kind of, um, although it may capture aspects of idealized sovereignty, right? That there is hypocrisy involved there. It, it, authority rests, but authorities continuously undermined, et cetera. It still doesn't have this other divisible side which is the lived sovereignty mm -hmm. aspect of it, which actually has multiple sources of mm -hmm. power and authority that speak for it, right? Exactly. Um, and where Krasner might see this as um, basically a gap between norms and practices, and might see the fact that, oh, look, in real life, people violate the norm of sovereignty all the time, which means norms aren't real, they're not doing any work for IR, and therefore um, anything associated with that, including constructivism, is sort of suspect. Um, that's yeah. the kind of argument that he takes in organized hypocrisy. I see that as different. I don't see um, this more as about norm violation, but much more about sovereignty in some ways requires this sort of two-step tango between practice and imagination. Um, and it takes a while for imaginations to catch up with practices. Um, and that's not a fault in how sovereignty is, but actually it's essential to how it survives for so long because the concept can be quite mobile and agile um, when we might it might take us a while to come up with arguments um, to understand how sovereignty is actually being lived um, while at the same time it can act, uh, while at the same time we can have practices, uh, that allow for sovereign governance to happen. Um, and it's not necessarily a problem, it's more how it survived for so long um, and has taken on different argumentations. So we used to really rely, you know, rely on certain kinds of divine rights of king in order to think about who has a right to be sovereign. We don't really rely on that anymore. And we could imagine another hundred years or something that we may move away from the public authority claims to have a different sense of who is allowed for that right, um, that wouldn't mean that we're that wouldn't mean that we are violating norms of sovereignty. It means that the norms will change over time because of practices, um, but they don't change all the time. And this is the one way in which I do agree with Krasner, which is that not every change in how sovereignty is practiced 
is going to be accepted as a change in the sort of, um, I guess, idealized versions of who is sovereign. And we see it in international law, we see it in international ethics, we see it in um, a lot of arguments where, you know, people have these um, sort of club-like effects in who gets to claim the benefits of sovereignty, who gets to, you know, have a seat at the UN, who gets to borrow on favorable rates, who gets to kill people in the name of the state, all of this stuff that we associate as sovereign privilege is not just doled out to anybody who comes in and wants a seat at the table. And so that's the kind of tension between um, having a sort of small set of people who are people or entities who are allowed access to sovereign rights um, while acknowledging that there's a lot more than just those folks who make sovereign power happen. Yeah, that's great. I, um, what you just said brought to mind this um, other point that perhaps it could be a secondary line of research coming out of your work, uh, not necessarily by you, but I think that the, thinking about sovereignty in hybrid terms really allows us for us to contemplate this further. And that is how regime types map onto your distinctions, these kind of conceptual distinctions, um, i.e. the you know the qualitative differences in the legal administrative foundations and structures of each state. Um, uh, how do they change between democracies to, let's say, oligarchy, autocracies, theocracies, absolute monarchies? Do the do regime type uh, different regime types um, lead to different versions of idealized sovereignty? Um, and is that because of the way the aspect in which lived sovereignty is realized under those regimes or or is there a kind of an international um a pressure from above that actually shapes different regimes to all act in the same way yeah no that's a great question and um i focused on not exploring as much on um having varieties of idealized sovereignty um, so the book goes into a little bit more detail and varieties of lived sovereignty um which we'll talk about Right. In terms of um, thinking about imagined sovereignty, um, th they weren't given many different types. But I think you're right that, of course, there's no just one um, type. I think there are different type of arguments that work for different polities. And you're right that um, there are ways in which people can justify um, certain kinds of rule, uh, family rule, dynastic rule, um, having different types of uh, arrangements, democracies or not. Um, and sort of and thinking about that as um, we don't have just one international narrative of who gets to be sovereign. Um, and I think that's a really helpful way to think about how um, the sort of universal becomes localized is, you know, people might think about this, something like sovereignty that could be universal. The idea that you have to legitimate power is potentially the sort of master narrative. But then how that argument actually happens is going to have a lot a lot of local varieties that there's no one way to legitimate power, even though the the, the actual underlying imperative is universal. Um, so yeah, I think it would be great to have an extension of this where we could see um, not just what you know basically how many forms are there in the world, uh, do a taxonomy of different types of idealized sovereignty. Uh, but can also see um, sort of failures as, um, and successes. So why have certain types of narratives um, been, been seen as more legitimate than others? Um, you know, under what conditions might something like public-private actors be seen as more legitimate forms of sovereign authority? Um, I'm sort of working on some stuff now about AI and whether or not AI can lead to a future of being seen as sovereign or seen as a hybrid sovereign. Um, so that's sort of one extension that I'm thinking about is um, as these new forms are coming in to challenge us further, um, what might it take for those to become accepted uh, forms of imaginations? Um, and, and I think it's useful to go and then look at other types of failure when arguments were being made and didn't work. Um, so an example that has come up recently is thinking about, um, about the African Union and the idea of Pan-Africa. And they wanted to think about sovereignty in a slightly different way. Um, 
So there was this like idea about, about the United States of Africa uh, that was proposed in the late 90s, um, but it was never quite taken up. And part of the reason was people weren't quite comfortable with the arguments about sovereignty uh, that were being articulated. And But maybe in another different decade or different century, those arguments might have more uptake. Um, and the way that we can conceive of uh, the AU might be different. Um, so that's like one example of failure that right. could work some other time. Uh, right. that, could, that could then be seen as a certain variety of idealized sovereignty. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating to me because it's, I mean, reading your book, I, it became clear to me why some of those kind of pan-African or pan-Islamic ideas never took hold, why religions have always had this pretension to universal sovereignty, and yet they get limited because of the lived sovereignty, the sources of lived sovereignty are so much more um, local and geographically delimited. So it's, uh, you know, and and the, the tension between the kind of universal aspirations versus the very particular sources of power, I think is a is something that this kind of distinction between idealized and lived really gets at is that the lived sovereignty is full of all these kind of really existing material um, forces that are constantly in tension with each other and contesting power mm -hmm. in a way. And I want to get to some of those because I think your chapters uh, from chapter three to six, I believe in the book, you have a series of four mm -hmm. empirical um, chapters that um, uh, look at the different ways in which lived sovereignty is experienced, but also has transformed over time. And I wonder if we could begin with um, the East India Company and Empire, because in many respects, that company state form mm -hmm. is it gives us a very good window inside how sources of authority can transform from a mere charter to becoming an extension of the state itself. Mm -hmm. uh, could you perhaps maybe begin by speaking about that and then Blackwater as well, which is the kind of the contemporary version of a, if, if, if we might think of it that way. Um, or as I was as I was thinking, even the um, the Wagner mercenary group is is perhaps even more timely because it it seems to be the Russian version of Blackwater in a way. Yeah, and so thinking about the East India Company um, was really helpful for me. Um, I read this book called The Company State by Phil Stern. It came out in two thousand eleven, so right around the time I started my PhD. And in the book, uh, Stern really highlights how there was this commercial empire that started uh, around 1600. And he was taking on some, um, some company histories that argued that the East India Company was an accidental sovereign, that they didn't really want to be in charge. They just like stumbled into being a sovereign and then had to figure it out. And he kind of uh, uncovered a lot of data that showed actually, no, they wanted a sovereign state and they built a sovereign state on purpose. It, it was not an accident. And they were really power hungry and wanted political power. They wanted to make a state, not just uh, build commerce. Uh, and so he was really puncturing this for-profit accidental sovereign story that a lot of company histories had told before that. But he sort of let slide that if you had something called a company state during the time when states themselves were making something of themselves, so this is around 17th, 18th centuries, um, then it, for me, the more important question was, well, how did states handle this? And how did the East India Company survive for as long as it did? It survived for over 250 years. You know, um, so imagine a company state that is allowed in some ways to survive that long. And so he's a historian, not a political scientist. So he wasn't necessarily interested in the questions about sovereignty. Um, so I became interested in that. And luckily, um, they, they had started to allow um, having the archives opened up more and photographed more. And so I was able to go to London and take photographs of all the company meeting minutes for a hundred year time period. And it was, this is really one way in which you start realizing that it, you know, it's, it is kind of state-like because um, there were a lot of uh, records. And so, and they were keeping records in very bureaucratic ways. Uh, you know, they were doing a lot of correspondence with rulers. They were like running their own sort of foreign relations arm. Um, they, of course, had a military. Uh, they were, you know, in charge of territory. Uh, eventually, they were taxing people and had to deal with tax revenues. 
and all the bureaucracies. So a lot of the Tilly way of thinking about, you know, state making war, making extraction capital, um, you can sort of see in the company. But the thing that I became more interested in was how the company thought of themselves and when they started to realize they had this sovereign competence and whether or not that sovereign power could translate to sovereign authority. You know, were they being deferred to by other rulers and especially by other European rulers? Um, so how did uh, people in London and Paris respond to this company state? Um, and so from looking at this 100-year period of time really closely, you can start see a bunch of patterns. And for me, it was about um, different types of relations between public and private, because, you know, um, as you said in the beginning, that there was there was basically a charter. So the company was always a public-private hybrid venture. It needed uh, it needed to be sanctioned by the monarch when it first started and later the parliament. So it had this charter, which was a contract that had to be renewed every so often. So because of this charter relationship, um, it needed some public approval and it had a sort of a quasi-state arm for that. Um, but then over time, these charters became longer and they lasted more in duration. So you, it's not like you were negotiating every other year to negotiate, you know, you had like 30 year charter terms, you had more room to play with. Um, you were also conducting business halfway around the world and it took, you know, six, seven months for correspondence to get around. So you, it was sort of this unique instance of um, having a public charter, but the accountability and oversight were really not there because of the distance. Um, and they were also innovating a lot in terms of um, sort of wars and territories. But then at some point, even though people in London knew what was going on, it helped them to not be fully involved. So even though England and France might not have been at war in Europe, they were able to fight in Asia, um, have sort of proxy wars, or vice versa. They were fighting in Europe, but they could be having sort of peaceful relations in Asia and conduct commerce. Um, so, so the companies, uh, and this is something that Andrew Phillips and Jason Sharman have talked about in their version of uh, sort of company states, uh, in you know, mostly an outsourcing empire. So they've talked about how um, these sort of charter companies allowed for different types of European great power rivalries to play out. Um, but for me, it was not just about that, but it was um, that the company allowed uh, for the extraction of resources and for that all the resources to go back to Europe and really kick-started capitalism, right? Started empire. Um, and for a long time, they were the ones who were administering, um, you know, peace, administering laws, administering taxes, um, all of the stuff that we think of as sovereign. And so the company became just uh, an important um, window into looking at the practices of how a, a private entity uh, might deliver public goals, but also again, sort of the blurring of public and private. You know, at what point is it delivering public goals? Uh, how do we know that these sovereign goals are public? Um, and in some ways, we start seeing uh, the public-private uh, distinction emerge in response to the company. Um, so some of the more telling examples are that the idea of sovereignty was not as formally fixed as being indivisible public until this company came along in the British public's imagination and people started getting really um, upset about how Britain was being perceived in the world. Uh, the company was being irresponsible. There was famine. There were uh, other kinds of scandals that were taking hold. And so all of the stuff that could have been just about corporate responsibility became about state power and state responsibility because of this public charter component. Um, and so suddenly people realized in, in Britain that we might have to reign, start reigning in the company because our own image is being affected overseas. And in those debates about how to really um, have regulation and oversight over the companies. Um, did this idea of having something like a public authority uh, that is supreme and overall um, that started to emerge more in the British um, uh, in the British political imagination. And so the, the story is both telling us a time when public private 
was blurry. There was all of this commercial sovereign stuff going on. But then because some bad things happened uh, and people wanted accountability, they started drawing uh, lines between what should be considered public function, public oversight, what should be considered private. And then drawing those public private lines um, more closely, uh, you started to come up with this idealized sovereignty that only the state is allowed to express sovereign rule, not these charter companies that are out there uh, trying to be sovereign. And so it's both a case that talks about lived sovereignty and also tells us why lived sovereignty um, can have these sort of anxieties uh, and why it might provoke uh, more sort of hardening relations between public and private. Yeah, that's great. And then in, in terms of, so, I mean, you you talk about the schematic of kind of um, going from a contractual sovereignty to an institutional form and then shadow and the shadow in a way is the mode, the way I uh, read it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is the mode in which that kind of company state relationship or dynamic is 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 kind of um, asserted itself in the kind of late 20th century, 21st century models of sovereignty and Blackwater, the other case with which you begin the book, but also you have a chapter on Blackwater that you explain in terms of the post 9-11 wars and the extensions of American sovereignty. Um, speak to us a little bit about that. How does where basically the model that you just described with EIC um, uh, gets reshaped uh, in, in, the, in, in the mode of private military contractor companies um, in, in contemporary politics. Yeah, and so um, when I was looking at lived sovereignty, um, I was really thinking about a lot of the literature um, in private authority and private global governance that's come out in international relations in the last 20 years that has helped us understand, you know, this idea of, again, private entities doing public functions. And that part to me is not new. Um, the sort of two contributions that I'm uh, making there is one is to say it's not just about private authority, it's about public-private, um, so it's like that it's about hybrid, so we cannot show independent private influence on states, that that's in some ways impossible to do, just like it's hard to find a pure public power, that there's always going to be some private hiding behind any pure public, and there's always going to be some public hiding behind any pure private, and so this idea that was very important for non-state um, powers and IR was to show independent effect to me is an illusion. So it was to move beyond that. And the second was to show that there are different types of relations between public and private. It's not all just one type of hybridity. And so um, I, I think about these three types, which came out of my analysis of the East India Company. So by following it 400 years, it emerged there were three different types of relations that they had. Um, one was contractual, which is about very formal relations between public and private that are oftentimes publicized. Um, so in that case, it was charters. So charters were publicly known. You knew when charters were being negotiated. Um, and they were, you know, they were formal, they were, they were sort of legal. Um, so those were the contractual types. Um, thinking about sort of less formal, less publicized relations uh, in more institutional hybridity. So this is about more networks and having public private actors um, sort of embedding themselves in similar institutions. Um, so I see this in the East India Company in how they started becoming members of parliament. And so instead of just having negotiations over charters and formal ways, they started influencing um, parliament through lobbying, uh, both internally and externally. And that was sort of uh, having sort of um, different ways in which you couldn't always tell that there was a formal relationship, but it was fairly publicized because you could see who's a member of parliament. And the last type is when it's not formal and it's also not publicized. And this is what I call shadow hybridity, where you cannot even see the relationships. And if you sort of point them out, then they're oftentimes denied that no, that, that basically does not exist. And I think a lot of times we assume that these public-private relations are usually all shadow, that you know, there's a lot of secret dealings going on between governments and non-governmental entities, especially corporations. Um, and I think that is probably true, but I think one thing that I was surprised by is how many relations 
are actually out in the open and that, that are publicly known, that are formalized either through public-private partnerships or through this sort of institutional lobbying. And all of that information is quite present. You know, you don't have to dig too deep to see sort of corporate contributions, to see boards, to see who was um, employed by the government, is now employed by the company. So in some ways, um, and these are not actively denied, uh, even though you might have to dig to find them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Blackwater was an example of something that might have started out in a more shadowy way, uh, in the way that it first acquired its first contract with the government, but then since assumed a more formal contractual role, uh, you know, was covered extensively in sort of war reporting around Iraq, um, even though the actual nature of what it did might have been shadowy, but its actual relationship was contractual. Um, and you, you can find contracts about Blackwater and the U.S. government. And the thing there was um, formal contracts allow you to have um, sort of the sovereign competence over stuff uh, that you might not want to do yourself if you're a state, but also um, think about how you can, um, because you have a legal relationship oftentimes, uh, to, to try to sort of displace responsibility uh, because you have other ways in which you can say, you know, it wasn't me, it was this contractor. It wasn't me, it was my partner. And that's exactly what we saw with Blackwater in Iraq where the book starts with this massacre in Nisar Square uh, in Baghdad, where, you know, the U.S. government, to, to their credit, went through, you know, al- almost 18 years of trying to hold the company responsible. And for various legal reasons, and some of them revolved around whether or not there was any jurisdiction over these contractors, because they were not Department of Defense contractors, they were Department of State contractors, um, U.S. international or U.S. international law at that point were quite ambiguous in how to think about them. Um, And so because there were these gaps between how to think about uh, hybrid sovereignty, how to think about when you have private entities performing public roles, um, it became difficult to hold Blackwater responsible uh, in a straightforward way. And we are seeing a version of this with Wagner today. And um, it was interesting, right, because Russia was dealing with a very publicized version of what happens when shadowy things become contractual. And one of the underlying disputes uh, was that uh, they wanted um, Wagner to sign contracts with the Russian military. They were operating more in shadowy ways um, and they wanted to be sort of brought under more control. um, And that was something that was under dispute. So again, the relationships between them, even though Uh, public and private can operate together. There's a lot of contestation over formalizing them and then publicizing them. Um, So even contractors can have shadowy relations and less formal uh, relations. Um, And Blackwater was in some ways unique in that it was both publicized and formal um, and also did a lot of bad things, which not all contractors do, right? So it kind of stands in for a bunch of relations um, in war, um, and uh, but but we sort of see how it's a useful. Um, I guess it's a useful thing, just like it's useful for us to have idealized sovereignty. Um, it's useful for us to have lived sovereignty because Blackwater allows the U.S. to do a lot more stuff in war than they could without it. Um, and then ultimately, we might sometimes think about this as, oh, it's bad for sovereignty because why does the U.S., which is the strongest military in the world, need to rely on contractors? So we might see that as a problem for U.S. sovereignty. Um, but I argue that actually it's not a problem. It's what makes sovereign power possible, um, that this is just the next evolution in how the U.S. fights wars and now Russia. Right. And, 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 right. And there's a great deal more in the chapters that I'm, sadly we don't have time to cover. And I really urge the listeners to go and read those chapters because um, there's a whole range of um, reflections on the how institutional hybridity in the U.S. government itself plays into this and uh, commingles with it. And obviously the, the way lobbying and the way money and um, contracting works in, in the Pentagon itself is is very um, uh, baroque in this in this manner as well. Um, 
I want to get to the other two case studies. You note in the book that, quote, since hybridity situates, idealized and lifts sovereignty in suspended dialogue, changes in how sovereign power lives can lead to changes in how sovereign authority is realized. And you go on to discuss this in more concrete terms in the cases of global IGOs and NGOs in the areas of trade, commerce, and human rights, um, respectively, in chapters five and six. Um, how is hybrid sovereignty at those levels uh, different from the level of company states and PM PMCs in the way that we just yeah, discussed? Yeah, so the book starts out um, as more traditionally focused on what we think about our sovereignty dilemmas, which are um, in the hierarchy of domestic states. Uh, you are um, dealing with principal agent problems of contracting, um, or you're having a, a corporation go out and do something for you. Um, and you still have like one recognizable sovereign entity that you're having these relations with. So US and Blackwater and East India Company um, and British Parliament or British Crown. Uh, but then you start you know, seeing that not everything that is about sovereign politics deals with such sort of neat agents and uh, principles. Um, and the book does not take a principal agent framework, but it's helpful sometimes to use that language to, to describe it. Uh, but that's a lot of globalization debates, for example, deal at the international level where you're dealing with how to govern um, sovereign um, politics without obvious, um, just like only one state entity and one non-state entity. And so in international commerce, for instance, um, I look at the case of the International Chamber of Commerce, which is this uh, 100, 100 year old lobby group, um, club service provider, all wrapped into one. And it basically does not respond to just one government. It's dealing with all the governments um, and it's creating infrastructures for organizing markets at the international level. So it's not just helping one government fight a war or one government organize markets or one government colonize, it's helping governments generally at the international level. Um, and then similarly, Amnesty International, which is chapter six, is dealing with human rights internationally. Uh, it's not just about how Amnesty deals with one particular government and human rights, um, but how the development of international human rights itself is a sovereign project, and that requires not just governments um, to help build international human rights law um, and institutions, but also requires an NGOs to actually carry out a lot of the expertise um, and development. And so both of those chapters are situated um, at the global level of sovereign politics rather than more at the domestic facing international level of um, uh, sovereign. And it makes it more interesting in some ways because it's harder to see what the sovereign um, contests are. Because I think oftentimes people who study sovereignty either focus at this, okay, let's look at Blackwater and US sovereignty, um, or they'll think about globalization. But even globalization debates, you're often focused on um, one or two single country um, contests. So how does globalization affect um, you know, how, how we're thinking about Brexit or how we're thinking about uh, China and offshoring and things like that. Um, but you also have other sovereignty things at stake when you think about global governance uh, and whether or not there are elites that are involved in global institutions, uh, whether or not rules are being created equally and fairly for everybody. Um, so those kinds of debates about uh, how global rules are made, uh, which are... Um, operating not just in one jurisdiction, but around the world. So those two cases are uh, in some ways abstracting away from just one polity and thinking about the structure of global governance generally and what happens when public and private actors are providing the rules for trade or rules for human rights at the global level. Terrific. Um, I, I just have two more questions. One of the tensions my mind kept returning to while reading your book is how, although the perspective of hybridity becomes very resonant to the reader, once you illuminate and contrast it with our conventional understandings of sovereignty, there is still this fact that the private forms of authority are authorized and allowed to develop by public holders of power, um, i.e. the agents of the state, our elected officials or 
you know, autocrats, etc. So my question is, what are the ethical implications of thinking about sovereignty as a hybrid construct, given the fact that the sources of public power can be at odds with what authorizes or justifies them? Um, it, is there, because of this way of looking at sovereignty, in a way, a cover, inadvertently perhaps, um, or maybe actually deliberately, a, a cover is created for private exertions of power that are often geared toward profit um, and concentration of power. How do we ethically think about this? Yeah, so I think one way that um, I sort of dealt with this indirectly is not using the language of private power or market authority or moral authority which has been the default way in which international relations has dealt with um, you know, private actors being influential, is that they don't usually use the language of this is political authority or this is sovereign power. Because we, even right. in the way we describe um, that this is, you know, that's reserved for states. And so a lot of the really influential global governance literature uh, with like Clara Cutler and Virginia Hoffler, Tony Porter, um, Thomas Hall and Bearsticker. So these were all people who did a lot of work defining for us why we should pay attention to non-state actors. But one thing that they also did was create these alternate categories where said where they said private authority can have market authority or they can have illicit authority if you're terrorists or you know drug lords, um, or you can have moral authority if you're NGOs or the church and things like that. Um, but what those categories also did was create a way for us to not think about them as political or sovereign. So by avoiding reifying them as non-political types of things and by keep calling them sovereignty and um, as part of sovereign politics, while not always being recognized as sovereign authority, but part of sovereign politics, um, and in some ways providing us with a normative framework um, that acknowledges that we have these um, uh, private entities that are part of public power. And uh, oftentimes it is not seen that uh, because we might either relegate them as other types of authorities and affecting other types of power, economic power, um, you know, for example. And of course, we know that something like the, the International Chamber of Commerce has huge implications for economics and economic power. But um, I'm not focusing on its economic concentrations and market power. I'm focusing on its political concentrations and political power. Uh, and I think this is a lesson that we can extend to thinking about um, stuff that I'm, uh, that I'm doing for the next book project, which is about big tech and AI. And in that sort of tech world and the cyber world um, and cyber governance, we, you know, there's a lot of this. <sighs> where we think about them as big market authorities, but actually they're also big political authorities and potentially sovereign authorities. Um, and so actually using the language of politics to talk about private entities is a very important choice. And to not just keep talking about them in economic terms uh, or even monopoly terms or just in market terms um, or in moral terms if you're NGOs, um, but to really bring them into the space of political discourse and keep calling out, what about this is political? Um, and I think once you start doing that, you might give more vocabulary um, to people about, okay, well, given that they are in the political sphere and involved in sovereign politics, um, how do we hold them responsible for sovereign harms? Um, and I think part of my reason for calling us sort of um, hybrid subjects is to recognize that there's always going to be, again, a public and a private behind a lot of um, politics that affects us. And oftentimes we see the public because it's more direct. Uh, it, it also announces itself more as public and political, um, whereas private interests don't announce themselves as public and political for obvious reasons. They don't want that accountability. Um, so we have to impose it on them. Uh, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg might not want to be known as the arbiter of truth, uh, and yet he is. And so um, I think dragging them into the public sphere is one way to deal with hybridity, because otherwise it's very easy to hide behind, oh, I'm not public, I'm not private, I'm neither. Um, and one thing that I think idealized right. sovereignty helps us with is create new kinds of responsibility in law and politics 
there's a reason why public and private is important. It, you know, we, we give different responsibilities to public agents versus private agents. Um, and so the more, I guess, we can include um, private actors in the public, it might give us more um, resources to hold them accountable. Yeah, I think that's one of the, among many other wonderful contributions in this book, that the, in a way, the liberation of the way we talk about the international system from the kind of traditional ideological critiques of be it capitalism or superstructure of this way or the other one, it allows for, I think, a critical investigation of varieties of ideologies that might exist in lived sovereignty and are trying to realize their ends through the co-opting of the functions of the state. Um, and that this way, you know, accountability is squarely, is kind of located in terms of where the, um, the borderlines between idealized and lived experiences of sovereignty are. So I think that's terrific. Um, lastly, um, I want to end our conversation, I'd be re remiss if I didn't, uh, with a question about the consistent pattern of references throughout your book to works in the humanities alongside in the social sciences. Almost every chapter dips into and engages with historical, literary, and philosophical arguments in complementary terms to more familiar ones in IR or political science. Personally, I find this most delightful combination of enlightenment to be, so it's wonderful for me to read. And I wondered uh, if you would say a few words about the extent to which it was intentional or just the way you do mm -hmm. research. Um, yeah, and so I, I consider myself um, as a um, as a wide reader, uh, I like to be a generalist in humanities and social sciences, um, which comes with it with its costs because uh, you do have at some point need to know a lot about your one literature to know right what the contribution is to keep up with it. Um, but I've always been um, borrowing from other disciplines as IR always has. This is not unique, um, but I like to know. Um, how other people have thought about phenomena that I care about, but they might not care about it for the same reasons. Um, and so thinking about power and public private and sovereignty, uh, you know, we don't have exclusive monopoly over studies of those questions. Um, and oftentimes actually in international relations, if I'm interested in a phenomena and it's already been done in IR, then what's the point of doing it? And so in some ways we have to go read outside of our disciplines um, in order to get more insights uh, because sometimes um, even though it's really helpful to read our own um, uh, our own uh, scholarship, if you get too inspired by that, you just repeat what you already know. And that's how foundations and dogmas get recreated. And to do a kind of work that wanted to think with and beyond foundational work and sovereignty, I had to, in some ways, look beyond international relations scholarship. Um, and so um, it was, I think, in some ways, very easy to build on other disciplines because I knew that they were not interested in the same sovereignty debates as we were. Uh, they had different concerns, um, but that they were providing with stories or insights about how to think about distinctions or how to think about public and private or tell me stories about contracting or companies uh, or NGOs um, or, uh, or capitalism that I could bring back to IR and say, look, like this stuff is not just happening in our field. Um, and in some ways, I think fiction is also really useful for that because it not just is, you know, in some ways um, more helpful to read because there are better writers than we are, um, but they can distill some of the um, more concrete tensions. You know, why do we care about concepts? Uh, why do we let things endure even though they might not be helpful? Um, and so I think reading some of the uh, even work in fiction is, is really generative or poetry because it helps me understand um, what is the power of narrative um, and representation so that when I keep going back to idealized sovereignty, it becomes important to be, yes, like we need narratives, we need myths, we need stories, <laughs> um, and all of those things serve a purpose. And so where, you know, where else you find better stories than the humanities? Um, and so that's, that's kind of one of the connections that I, that I keep going back.
Here, here, it's wonderful. And I, um, uh, again, uh, for listeners, I really urge them pick a copy of this book because they will be rewarded also in those ways as well. I particularly liked how in the introduction, you really took off from T.S. Eliot's uh, poetry that um, a few lines from the dry salvages um, to really um, use that imagery that's used in the poetry to really conceptually get at this concept of sovereignty. Um, that line, the sea is the land's edge also, uh, the granite into which it reaches, the beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. And it was marvelously weaved into um, this other body of that it is marvelous on its own in social science and in IR that um, I think resulted uh, in getting the conceptual clarity of the contribution you're making here that much greater. So um, the book is packed with those wonderful um, interweaving of uh, different bodies of work as well. Uh, Professor Shrivastav, thank you so much for this uh, book and for your time talking to us about it. Um, uh, I appreciate um, this contribution very much. Thank you so much. And I'm very excited to announce that there will be a paperback version soon. And so hopefully by the time this podcast goes up, uh, you don't have to spend $100. <laughs> it can be oh, way wonderful. more uh, affordable. And so I'm excited that it should come out sometime this year in 2023. Wonderful. And I will we'll link to that paperback uh, version on the ISR website. Perfect. Thank you Thank so you. much.